This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies. I am John Yargo, your host. In February 1848, a book auction took place in Astra House Number no. 7 on the corner of Broadway and Vesey in Lower Manhattan, New York. By all accounts, the books on auction were shabby, and books like them were culled every day from private and public libraries. One observer described some of the books as quote, beyond a certain investure of raggedness and dilapidation, backs without covers, mutilated title pages, and missing colophons on ordinary occasions, end quotes. Another observer writes, they were so positively wretched that they were really became fascinating in that very account, as your halfway beggars are despised by everybody, while you're thoroughgoing pestiferous, rag-and-filth accumulation sits to Murillo and the masters, end quote. Despite their ragged and pestiferous condition, these books drew the attention of book lovers throughout the United States. In some ways, the point was in the discontinuity between their deeper significance and their ragged condition, and in the rare discernment of a true bibliomaniac which could see through to their real quality. The afterlife of this collection is in part the subject of Book Madness, a story of book collectors in America by today's guest, Denise Gigante. Denise is the Sadie Durnham Patek, a professor in the humanities at Stanford University. She's the author of the previous books, The Keats Brothers, The Life of John and George, Life, Organic Form, and Romanticism, Taste, A Literary History, and two anthologies, The Great Age of the English Essay and Gusto, Essential Writings in 19th Century Gastronomy. Welcome to the podcast, Denise. Thank you. Delighted to be here. I want to start by asking you how you came to write this book. What sparked your interest and how did you become fascinated in Charles Lamb in particular? I think I've always been interested in Lamb. Um, and I think that my interests really peaked in graduate school when I was reading through his letters. Um, you know, 
letter writing is its own type of art. And like John Keats, uh, Charles Lamb was really, really came alive in his letters. He's known as an essayist, uh, as a literary essayist, and he's a model for two centuries of literary essayists who followed him. But, um, but um, you know, his letters often provide the raw material for those essays. So when I left graduate school, I started teaching at Stanford and I was in special collections doing research on something. And I noticed that they had a catalog of Lamb's books from Charles Lamb's library from 1897. Um, it was a catalog produced by the Dibden Club of New York. And it was not what I expected. It turned out to be a handmade book. It had that catalog bound together with um, William Carew Hazlitt's uh, biography of Charles Lamb. It had letters pasted into it. It had handwritten autographed notes on it. Um, and the more that I studied this object, the more I realized that this was itself the product of a latter-day bibliomaniac who was on the trail of the books that came from Charles Lamb's library, the books that Lamb wrote about in his own essays, and that really helped define his identity. So I thought, well, this is interesting. This um, turn-of-the-century bibliomaniac was chasing down Lamb's books um, uh, and never really got very far. And that was the challenge that I took up. Um, where did these books go? And what was the culture of collecting su surrounding them? What did it really look like to be in the book world in mid 19th century America, when America was becoming a book capital. On page 134, you include some of the doodles um, from Charles Lamb's uh, letters that are just like really delightful. Mm -hmm. uh, these are from a letter to Bernard Barton, uh, December mm -hmm. 1st, 1824. And um, you describe them as at once cute, zany, and interesting. Um, just, just fascinating. And, and then these would be sometimes included in the association copies. Is that right? I guess I should uh, define an association copy. An association copy of a book is a book that was previously owned by somebody who was famous, in short, somebody who would be recognizable. Um, and um, and Lamb clearly was. Um, Lamb wrote in his own books. They were, it was a working library. Um, he didn't really have much reverence for the pristine object of the book. Um, but he's he squeezed in all sorts of um uh, sort of long poems, short poems, fewer doodles. Uh, than he had in his letters, although Coleridge did include some in Charles Lamb's books. Coleridge was um, a close friend. He was a romantic poet, an essayist himself, and a friend of Charles Lamb's, of course. And he um, he's the person we associate with the word marginalia. He invented the word marginalia, or probably borrowed it from Montaigne, to be honest. Uh, 
But Coleridge was a master of marginalia and he has volumes and volumes and volumes of marginalia um, in print. Uh, so that was something really special about Lamb's books. And, you know, his letters also, like his books, need to be seen in person for that reason. It's hard to reproduce them. <laughs> as they were. Book Madness is an experiment in associational book history, and then we've already begun um, discussing what that is. Uh, this book weaves together the emergence of public libraries, a celebrity culture of authors and book collectors, technological advances in transatlantic communication and transportation, and the social lives of book obsessives of every class and identity. How did you arrive at this shape for the project? And what were the challenges to crafting it? So um, there were about 60 association copies left in Charles Lamb's library in his own personal collection when he died, when, he, when his sister died, um, because his books went to his sister after his own death. Um, and then friends walked off with them, uh, some got lost, but 60 remained and went to New York and were sold in 1848. And so the organizing principle of the book is where did those books go? Who did they become connected with next uh, in, a, in a chain of associations that precedes Charles Lamb? Um, Charles Lamb was not the first owner of his books. Most of his books were 17th century books, and they already had a life history of their own that he knowingly entered. Um, so the organizing principle was this 1848 sale at the heart in the heart of the book world in New York at in the moment when American literary history as such, secular American literary history was really getting going. Um, the 1840s were the moment, uh, the explosion, really. And um, I guess I always knew that it needed to be organized into clusters of collectors um, because we know some of their names. We don't know all of their names. And there are groups of them who are associated with one another. So continuing the associational line of thought, um, I wanted to bring out different kinds of book culture in mid 19th century America. Um, and so, so there's, so the chapters are grouped in that way. There's a chapter on publishers and editors, mainly in New York, in the literary world of New York. Um, there's a chapter on uh, Shakespeareans who are uh, bibliomaniacs, but also uh, a phrase I like to use uh, that I coined for this book is bardomaniacs. Um, they collected not only books, but anything associated with the bard, as you know, because you've read the book, um, gloves, all sorts of things. And a chapter follows that on American antiquarians who are collecting manuscripts and objects of American literary, not literary history, American history. 
Um, and then lastly, the culture of the public library, because one of the collectors of Lamb's books was the mastermind behind what became the New York Public Library. And the, new, and the public library movement, the effort to provide the average reader with resources necessary to become a quote unquote cultured individual um, was something that was happening at mid-century throughout the 40s and also in the 1950s, 1850s. So that was the organizing structure um, these clusters of book collecting and the the networks uh, of associations between them, because it was a very small world at the time um, compared to today. Um, and there were connections between clusters as well as within them. I want to come back to Bartomania in a, in a minute. But first, the title of your book, Book Madness, is more or less a direct translation of bibliomania. And as you define it, bibliomania is different than other forms of bookishness like belletrism. Um, how is it unique? And how do association copies fit into this mania? Okay, so there's bibliophilia, which is um, uh, individuals who love books, who love reading, who um, don't necessarily need to collect old books, um, but who are basically um, book people. There is the bibliomania is something that mm, uh, became a, a kind of trend around the turn of the 19th century. And that involved collecting books as objects of cultural history. And the way that it began in Britain was with old books proper, the oldest books printed in Cunabula, um, copies of uh, 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 famous printers from the, from the origins of, of printing, um, famous binders, famous bindings, um, really uh, books as curiosities and as objects, as well as containers of information or literary uh, values. So when, um, by the time American collectors entered the picture of bibliomania, which was really a transatlantic phenomenon, a lot of the really older books had been snapped up. It was. It became harder to find, you know, to build a collection of really old books if you were living in the United States at the time. So people became interested in niche categories, and um, one of those niche categories was this um, sentimental mode of collecting, uh, which is collecting association copies, collecting copies of books or manuscripts that were owned by very often other authors um, or cultural figures. And these became a way of, um, of allowing people in the United States to build um, collections ahead of Great Britain, actually. So the Americans were the first collectors of the romantic writers, really, 
So John Keats, Percy Shelley, um, pioneering in, in collecting those works and objects and manuscripts began in the US, uh, ironically enough. And Charles was on the cut, Charles Lamb was on the cutting edge of that. Charles Lamb was a big favorite in the 19th century. His sensibility really appealed to Americans. And one of the reasons it appealed so much to Americans was that Lamb, you know, what did, did not come from a privileged background. He was a working man. He was involved in the commercial enterprise of the British East India Company. Um, he worked to support his sister, so his family. And uh, most Americans were book collectors were involved in commerce as well. So they had to spend their days doing something that they found mercenary. And they found Charles Lamb to be a source of inspiration for keeping an intellectual and spiritual and literary life alive around the corners of economic necessity, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so I was a graduate student at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and there's a, a Renaissance Center there um, that has that's basically the former collection of Arthur Kinney, who founded the center. And so when Arthur would uh, bring in guests, he would, you know, they would tour the collection and he would take down a copy of the Fairy Queen, turn to the, the front page where William Wordsworth's signature is written across the top. Now, he, he took great delight in revealing this as a forgery. You know, it's actually a forged signature for Wordsworth. But and forgeries figure into your book as well, right? Mm -hmm. um, collectors would often um, pick up. I, I remember there's an anecdote of an 18th century forger um, who, whose actual contributions or um, creations end up in the collection of a barter maniac, right? Absolutely, yeah. William Henry Ireland was um, uh, a famous Shakespeare forger and a very successful one until he was discovered. He was uh, uh, the Shakespeare scholar Edward Malone sort of um, outed him as a forger. But um, forgeries, yeah, there's a whole cottage industry of, of forgeries of various sorts. Um, um, uh, the poet Chatterton uh, also um, forged uh, number, well, produced poems that he attributed to a medieval monk. So that's a type of forgery. Um, there was the forgery of the Ossian um, epic, the Scottish Ossian. That was a big trend in the 18th century. That turned out to be by James McPherson. Uh, so that too was attributed to an ancient bard when it was a contemporary production. So there's this really interesting fraudulent <laughs> sphere of, of book collecting and manuscript production that itself becomes a curiosity. And people include, um, say, subsection of their library on forgeries because they are themselves a historical artifact. Um, so... So the anecdote you're telling, though, from from Amherst um, is poignant because, um, you know, these book collectors were also very often great storytellers. And so and if not 
performance artists. So when you saw a book in their hands, particularly an association copy, like the fraudulent Wordsworth copy of the Fairy Queen, um, you, you very often were listening to a, a, a book lover slash master, you know, narrator, and the book then bears its own fascination and is contagious, really, that kind of passion, enthusiasm, which borders on madness, you know, I mean, really, madness is a kind of enthusiasm run wild or passion uh, in the face of a world of reason, right? I also saw in your book this other story about mental illness and literary culture. Uh, one of the protagonists, uh, Mary Lamb, suffered from severe mental illness. In indeed, um, after her passing, after her death, it came out that she had been involved in some uh, pretty violent uh, events. Um, how did you come to see the connection between 1800s uh, literary culture and the understanding of madness in the 19th century. Romanticism was, in a sense, also an object of fascination in America because it's a moment in time when precisely this subject, unusual states, mental states, became of really great literary interest. And so we have De Quincey's Confessions of an English Opium Eater are a great part of the essay tradition. Um, much of Coleridge's writing, um, you know, sort of plays with, um, if not borders on, uh, kind of visionary madness. Um, and Charles Lamb and his sister Mary both suffered from um, uh, moments of what was called madness, um, which were moments of um, lack of lucidity to the point where they were both institutionalized. Charles Lamb very briefly, but Mary Lamb in and out uh, of various institutions throughout her lifetime. And the, the culture at the time uh, in the early 19th century was, was privatized. Um, there was Bethlehem, there was Bedlam basically, um, and state institutions, uh, which were like circuses, you could pay to visit them. But then there were private homes and people throughout London, in fact, throughout England, who would take in um, individuals who were suffering from, from mental disturbances and care for them. And so there was a real domestication in a sense of, of, of mental illness. Um, I'm not sure that, I mean, I, you, you're not the first reader actually to note the obsessiveness of the bibliomaniac in relation to the actual madness of that Lamb experienced and that his sister experienced and their recourse to books as a kind of, I don't know, refuge from the everyday. I mean, book collecting is a kind of madness. It's called bibliomania in Lamb's day. And there's a kind of ex extremism in it, um, you know, which, which is, well, I guess one of the points of my book is to trace the different genres of book madness.
um, the historical type, the literary type, as you're saying with Bartomania, um, the public, um, the public good, the public library for the public good, and the sort of like ideal to organize knowledge. We now have the internet, but you know, books used to be it. Libraries used to be the internet. So, on the lighter side, I was amused at Charles Lamb's treatment of the books of his contemporaries, friend authors who didn't quite live up to the standard of Milton or Shakespeare in Lamb's eyes. Would you mind reading for me a quote from the book? Sure. Okay. Um, so this is um, a quotation by Thomas Westwood, who was a poet, who was a young man at the time that he met Charles Lamb. Um, and so this is from his perspective. Although Lamb received a steady supply of new publications from friends and admirers, such books were fleeting presences in his life. It was not that Lamb was indifferent to the literary doings of his friends, Westwood explained, but their books as books were unharmonious on his shelves. They clashed both in outer and inner entity with the, with the Marlowe's and Milton's that were his household gods. As his neighbor, Westwood recalled receiving a steady supply of such novelties, mostly presentation copies through eccentric channels. A Lee Hunt, for instance, this is Westwood, would come skimming uh, to my feet through the branches of the apple trees. Our gardens were contiguous. Or a Bernard Barton would be rolled down the stairs after me from the library door. Marcian Colonna, I remember finding on my windowsill, damp with the night fog. And the plea of the midsummer night, midsummer fairies I picked out of the strawberry bed. So... That's Westwood. The authors of such castoffs were Lamb's friends, but their works were not for his library. And what this section of the book um, is pointing out is that um, Lamb was a connoisseur of old books. Um, presentation copies are copies of books signed by the author and given to a friend or an acquaintance um, and Lamb received many of those because he was in a literary circle in London and many of his friends were authors. But those books, he really didn't see harmonizing, as I mentioned, on his shelves with his old books, his 17th century folios, his leather bound hardbacks, um, his coverless, dusty um, you know, his books were in very poor shape. Um, and these new books to him were ephemeral, really, for the most part. They didn't really have the gravity, the gravitas uh, of an old book that had its own history, had a cracked face like his own, you know, that had suffered as he had suffered. Um, new books were worth reading for Lamb sometimes, uh, or at least glancing at, but owning a book was an investment um, for Lamb. Um, owning a book meant reading it not just once, but going back to it um, for inspiration, for wisdom, for counsel, for consolation, for friendship, um, for all sorts of things. Um, a collector who forms a library very often will have a specific um, 
type of relationship with his or her books. And Lamb's relation to these old books was one of probably identification, I would say. Um, and one of his favorite authors, Robert Burton, um, Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy is a kind of essayistic, itself an essayistic study of, of madness, of melancholy, um, which is itself a kind of madness. And, and Lamb certainly suffered from melancholy um, at the same time as he saw the humor in life, which is why he was so appealing to so many readers in, you know, in the 19th century, he recognized the tragicomic nature of life, right? It had, his humor had a kind of weight to it as the same time as real tragedy in his hands as an author became its own delight, mm. you know? There's that neologism that, that we're seeing now, a shelvy, which is a conflation of bookshelf and selfie. And I think it captures the way the books on our shelf are a sort of an assemblage of our identities, you know? So what you're saying about identification, I take um, take to heart. It, it also strikes me about that anecdote that Lamb could be very genial, very um, garrulous, gregarious with, um, with authors, but maybe more severe and candid with the manuscript, right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, keep in mind that with that there is a difference between the manuscript and the printed book insofar as um, when authors presented Lamb with their manuscripts, he was honest, but he was also encouraging, particularly with younger authors. He went out of his way to help them uh, to make notes. He, he, he did the same thing with Wordsworth, but Wordsworth was less receptive to his criticisms. Um, but the printed book is something that's already done, so to speak. So yes, Lamb was very congenial in person, but he also had a prickly side, which is which is why his his sense of humor is anything but bland. It's actually very un-American. Um, it's highly ironic, and um, it, it it you know to to toss an old book out the window. It, to toss, sorry, to toss a new book out the window into the strawberry patch, um, you know, that's a lasting image for a reason. What does it say to you? I'm curious. Oh, um, well, it, it does resonate with me. I mean, I have a lot of, um, a lot of writer friends and you do get, um, you get free copies. You, you feel a little burdened by, um, mm. Mm. By, by the, the the material upkeep of so many books you know mm -hmm. um I, I i guess that's what strikes me is, yeah. Yeah. is is the feeling um that it's a little bit of a of a demand put on you mm -hmm. i mean when lamb uh wanted a book or sought out a book um it was almost as if he needed to have it on the shelf. And it was, as you're saying, a reflection of himself. And it it was, I mean, libraries are like autobiographical um, constructions, right? Whereas when you're given books and you're given a lot of books, like you don't have any choice in a sense, like you are not exercising your taste in that collection, right? So 
I think if LAM stands for anything in, in say, the world of book collecting or in the world of books, it's all about taste. You know, LAM was not a a trendsetter nor a trend follower. Um, And yet he had a very keen sense of taste, both in books and in food, by the way. Um, And was very articulate about that taste, um, both his taste about food and books in his essays, in his letters and in person. And in a sense, he stands for taste. I mean, taste is very, very, very important to Charles Lamb. You know, Charles Lamb does not have a suburban family to support his identity. his identity is very much wrapped up in his in his taste and you know exerting that taste through his library and then writing about it in essays like the two races of men or detached thoughts on books and reading helped convey to other readers in fact set the trend for a kind of sentimental collecting in which one had a relationship with 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 specific books, not in it. You know, it's not a title or a text that we're talking about. It's an object that you've read and that you've read in a certain moment, in a certain place, maybe in probably in more than one place. And all of those associations internal to the book shape the experience of rereading that book. Largely for Lamb, rereading was more important than reading, right? Because, you know, he would read anything probably. Um, but what one chooses to reread and become more deeply involved with is where taste starts taking on a kind of deeper resonance. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. And not necessarily uh, like a prestige edition of a book either. That's one of the things that struck me was uh, the preference. And I think this um, is touched on in a section about the, the Bartomaniac Balmano who preferred the um, cheaper or uh, the cheaper, less lavishly illustrated editions of Shakespeare over the prestige format, right? So that was Lamb actually. Oh, right. Oh, okay. Lamb, Lamb preferred the run of the mill, uh, the equivalent, the 18th century, early 18th century equivalent of the paperback Shakespeare, right? Books that uh, didn't cost an arm and a leg 
and that weren't um, displayed on the shelf as cultural capital, but that were carried around with you, maybe in a pocket. John Keats carried these very same editions um, because they were affordable. Um, and to Lamb that spoke more about the spirit of Shakespeare. James Thompson, who's an early 18th century poet, he said, you need to read in an old cracked leather um, dog-eared copy. It's kind of book you sit down with on a rainy winter evening, you know, and cuddle up with. But Shakespeare is meant to be tossed around the multitude. And so those were the kind of books that were for him the most appropriate. Also, Lamb is part of this school of thinking. And here too, he's on the avant-garde um, that Shakespeare's best in the imagination. So those rougher woodcut images that leave more to the imagination to his mind suit the plays better than more polished, realistic, um, versions of say Hermione is a statue in the in the Winter's Tale. It leaves little for you to imagine because the artist has imagined it visually. Um, so Lamb and his essayistic persona Elia uh, makes a big deal about um, appreciating Shakespeare in language. Um, so prestigious editions. You know, we're talking, we're going back to this idea of authentic taste, right? You can't buy taste. You have to suffer for it. You have to earn it. It has to be something that you know for yourself. You can't just hire an expert to do it for you. And so prestige editions, um, leather-bound standard sets, authors that everybody has, those kinds of things repelled Charles Lamb, actually. Um, you know, the bourgeois, uh, uh, beautifully bound leather set of, of, of classic works of literature is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a, a much more um, personalized approach to literary history. Your second chapter takes up the motto that Charles Lamb coined, but New Yorkers adopted quote, books that are books, end quote. Uh, it's much more than a tautology. Uh, what did that mean in 1840s New York? And how did it mobilize literary culture in that period? Well, that's a perfect segue from what we were just talking about, because for Lamb, not everything that was produced as a book qualified as book, right? So a prestigious lead or uh, say, a, I don't know, a book, a copy of um, David Hume for the Gentleman's Library in blue Morocco with gilt lettering or something like that is on the shelf largely for the purpose of cultural capital and showing one's status and one's being cultured, right? But since you can't really buy that, <laughs> very often um, that looks worse, you know, than having a bunch of paperbacks that you've read 50 times on your shelf. So, so what that meant, books that are no books, Biblia a Biblia was Lamb's quotation from Detached Thoughts on Books and Reading. 
And he gave a whole, ca- you know, catalog of those. Um, uh, you know, the equivalent today might be something like cookery books, um, gardening books, self-help books. I mean, books that are taking up the most most of the space in the main room of a bookstore today because they're commercial, um, but they're not really books, right, for him. And so the phrase books that are books not books that are no books, books that are books, was an adaptation of Lamb's phrase. And it was used by the American man of letters, Edward Doikink, who was the son of one of the first printers in New York City. He was also uh, the editor of The Literary World, very um, well-known journal. Um, he was the editor of the Encyclopedia of American Literary History, um, and he was just, he was well-known himself as an essayist. He started the Library of Choice Reading, um, which was an early 1840s version of the Library of America today, which the Library of Choice Reading attempted to supply the American public with affordable, high-quality high literature. And so these are books that are books. That was the motto for the series. They were European reprints and they had the stamp of taste of of the editor who can assure the reader that if you buy a book from the library of choice reading, this is a choice book and it is a book. He might, he probably would have expected readers to recognize the phrase too. Talk to us about Bartomania, the obsessive fascination with Shakespeare in 19th century America. In addition to the Holy Grail of Shakespearean collectors, the first folio, which um, didn't at first uh, attract as much um, interest from New York collectors, right? They, they didn't necessarily think the folio was the, the object they should attain, but co- collectors in the United States circulated a range of objects, leather gloves that Shakespeare allegedly owned, the actor William Evans Burton, who did who did value uh, the, the possession of a uh, first folio, Burton's chalice adorned with scenes from the plays, and perhaps most oddly, pieces of mulberry. Um, how did Shakespeare become such a focus of attention? And what is your favorite story about Bardomaniac, Bardo maniacal collecting? There you go. Okay. Um, well, so again, I think it's interesting that you're sort of um, blending in Lamb's view with the American collectors of his books, because it was actually Lamb who didn't believe um, that earning a fir- that that owning a first folio meant much to a real Shakespearean. But the American collector, the American Shakespeare collector, literary collector. Uh, you know, this was a holy grail for them, the first folio. The problem is they're extremely hard to come by, right? So somebody like William Evans Burton, who was an Englishman originally, who had a massive library of 20,000 books, um, you know, uh, found one. But your average collector wouldn't never, wouldn't even come near a first folio in their lifetime. So they collected a 
a whole ray of paraphernalia and there was a transatlantic industry of objects associated with Shakespeare. And mulberry was the mulberry tree. Here we go around the mulberry tree. It was it, it goes all the way back to the um the first um Shakespearean Jubilee uh organized by the author um by the performer the, the Shakespearean actor David Garrick in Stratford upon Avon to celebrate Shakespeare. Um, so this mulberry tree was a legend. It was allegedly chopped down and then turned into all sorts of souvenirs and objects. And that was the beginning also of um, literary, the literary souvenir culture. You know, I have a, a mulberry mug from Shakespeare's tree. Um, in terms of why Shakespeare was such a big deal in the 1840s in the United States, um, again, keep in mind that this is the decade of American literary self-fashioning. So if you're moving out of what was in effect um, a religious literary culture, a lot of what was produced, uh, printed in New England, in Philadelphia, um, was, was, were, you know, theological tracts and, um, sermons, but in the 1840s, when you have the emergence of a secular literary tradition, um, Shakespeare is, you know, the source of that English literary tradition, right? Doesn't go back to the classics any longer. Now, since we're reading in a modern language, which is English, Shakespeare is is the father of, you know, imaginative literature. So coming close to he was he was old for Americans, you know. He wasn't Homer, but he was the equivalent for the moderns. And so so that's why people went crazy trying to obtain anything connected to him. He was a very very popular author. And one of the collectors you mentioned in the book who purchased a number of um, Lamb's books, William Evans Burton was a Shakespearean stage manager. And he, his shows were extremely popular. They went on the road um, and they were historically accurate representations of Shakespeare to the degree possible based on research in Burton's own library. So original prints from the period, costume design, portraits, tapestries. Was it Burton who's, um, who named his children, his two daughters, um, Rosalind and- um, Delia. Yeah, and, and the, the, his oldest son was William Shakespeare yeah. Burton, is that right? Yeah. 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 Uh, so that's, you know, that's the kind of enthusiasm that was embraced in the public sphere, right? In the world of bellatrism that you mentioned earlier, which is like a literary culture outside of academia, outside of a professional context. And um, that's the kind of enthusiasm that sustained it, you know, naming one's children after Shakespeare's um, characters isn't far from my naming my cat, you know, Shelley after Percy Shelley, or rather my cat's named Percy, my goat is named Shelley. Um, 
but I have peacocks named Byron and Keats. So that's not something that speaks to um, a kind of like hardcore literary uh, critical edge. It speaks to the belletristic sense of living literature um, enthusiastically, so to speak, uh, living literary culture, if that makes sense. <laughs> Can you talk to us about the testimonial chair, uh, an illustration of which um, adorns the cover of Book Madness? Sure. So this testimonial chair uh, was made not, strangely enough, of mulberry, but of rosewood, which was popular and easy to find in the 19th century. And it was a chair that the collector, Robert Balmano, who's in my story because he purchased Lamb's books, um, uh, dedicated to um, one of Lamb's friends, uh, who was the author of the Shakespeare Concordance. So this was the first masterpiece of Shakespeare scholarship that traced all of the words in Shakespeare's plays um, to their places of origin. It was an incredibly useful reference tool. And so, um, uh, so, Bert, so Balmano collected 250 donations from various Americans, uh, James Fenimore Cooper uh, among them, um, P.T. Barnum, um, who, who gave $5 basically to support the production of this Shakespeare chair, which was intended to be a reading chair. Um, and uh, it had all of the Shakespeare symbology on it, the swans from the, from the Avon, the shield that Shakespeare uh, purchased when he became a gentleman, um, the masks of comedy and tragedy. Um, this was all highly symbolic visual artistry um, that made the rounds of the Bardo maniacal community. And it was on the chair, it was, in, it was, it was carved into the chair. And there was a lot of attention and, and coming together through various associations involved in this chair. Okay, so this was a communal effort. This was a testimonial on the part of Americans from across the states, east to west, north to south, um, organized by Robert Balmano and presented to Mary Cowden Clark in London with, with great fanfare. Um, and uh, it wasn't the only testimonial that issued from, you know, uh, across the Atlantic, but it was a very special one um, because it was so highly symbolic. And the idea behind it was that Shakespeare um, makes the whole world one right? That we're all, um, if we're fans of Shakespeare, then we're brothers or sisters or, you know, the world becomes um, associational through, through Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. I guess one of my favorite collecting stories, I think you asked me about that, was when Robert Palmano uh, visited England and made a special trip to Windsor Forest to Hearn's Oak, 
which is in the uh, Merry Wives of Windsor. It's a haunted tree in Windsor Forest, uh, frequented at midnight by a scary ghost uh, uh, and who terrifies all the villagers of Windsor. Um, so Robert Balmano, in a literary pilgrimage to this tree, uh, ended up scraping some bark off of it, some oak, and presented it to his friends in the New York Shakespeare Society, of which he was the secretary, unfolded again with great fanfare and presented this oak. Um, and one of his, you know, sort of witty uh, uh, Shakespearean uh, cohort said, are you sure you weren't barking up the wrong tree? <laughs> this is a wonderful object, but, you know, is it really authentic? And that's the question that underlies most of the mulberry objects that circulated as relics, the Shakespearean relics. But there were frauds in, there were, you know, medieval uh, uh, reliquaries that were full of uh, fraudulent saint bones and pieces of the cross and things. So this is a tradition that goes back to the beginning of collecting relics and the sacral nature of the object largely lies in the imagination. You know, at the end of the day, um, does it matter which tree he scraped? He went to Windsor Forest on a pilgrimage to what was in effect a literary saint um, and brought back a piece of it. And that itself is a kind of authenticity. I'm not sure if you would agree, but one could argue that the very passion invested in an object is what matters about it. I think I would agree. I think I would agree. I mean, I, I think this goes back to the the thing about um, forgeries, you know, the way yeah. that they themselves gain an air of authenticity mm -hmm. in um, Walter Benjamin's famous phrase, you know. Um, so talk to us about the public library movement and how that fits into the story of book madness. So there were it, there was a great difference between the status of book collecting in the US and in Europe in the 1840s when my book is set um you, you know um people have been collecting books since the beginning of printing uh in a european context while america was just getting started i said it was hard at that point to catch up um on the collection of old books but it was also hard to catch up on institutional collecting. And institutional collecting differs from private collecting often in being less about the collector and the personality or character of the reader um, and collector than about comprehensiveness, about forming um, a, a, a vast collection, a bibliomaniacal collection almost uh, for the public. And again, encyclopedic in scope or by today's standards, a version of the internet, right? An information warehouse. And the United States was way behind on that. Most of the um, important collections in the US in the 1840s were private. Uh, in fact, yeah, the, the great, great majority of them, um, they were in historical societies, they were in uh, wealthy um, um, uh, businessmen, 
books, libraries. Um, and that's in part why there was such a network of book collectors, because people relied on each other to find a certain edition of a certain book. Um, people who were studying history or who were interested in Shakespeare. But the philanthropic moment in the U.S. in mid-century started to say, it began in Boston and New York, and it began to ask the question of how can we build an institutional library in the United States on the scale of a European library? How can we, how can we provide that level of uh, a research institution to our own people so that great works of literature and history can emerge on this side of the Atlantic. Um, and so you had these um, philanthropic collectors like Joseph Green Cogswell, who devoted his life to that project. And he was inspired uh, in particular by the University Library at Göttingen, which had about 350,000 volumes at the time. Um, by way of comparison, Har Harvard's library, which was by far the largest library in the U.S. at the time, was 70,000 volumes. So a fraction, right, of, of the largest um, European university library. In addition, <clears throat> um, library science was more advanced in, in Europe. And so Cogswell, who's chief protagonist really of chapter five of my book, um, imported to the United States, the card catalog system, which was a much more flexible way of organizing a library's um, uh, catalog. You could move the cards around in boxes the way that they were moved until it became digital. Before that, everything was printed. So it was a very static system and it was resistant to change. And he also imported the idea that somehow or another, a library should be systematically organized. And so you have, for example, the subject catalog of the library as well, um, in addition to author and title. And that standard of library science organization, and also with great attention to the building itself, um, you know, was, part of the mid-century public library movement. And uh, John Jacob Astor, who was the richest man in the US at the time, funded the Astor Library, which became the New York Public Library when it merged with Jane Lennox's library. Lennox was the biggest book collect, largest bibliomaniac in the US. Um, and then Cogswell's friends in Boston followed his lead, people he had studied with in Europe, to found the Boston Public Library. And those were the two first major public libraries. Um, the Boston Public Library as a freely circulating library and the New York Public Library as originally a library of research and deposit. You couldn't take out the books. The Library of Congress was the same thing. It was the national collection, but congressmen could take the books out and the Library Company of Philadelphia, which was the first really large institutional library, was a subscription library. So while it made books available to the public during certain hours in the reading room, et cetera, um, it wasn't a technically a public library in the way that the New York or the Boston Public Library 
work. So I guess the last thing I would say that's really important about that, that we sometimes forget, is that those libraries were founded on a kind of grand neoclassical model, that the library was there not just to provide um, access to text, to reading material, but it was also there to inspire and uplift. So these, these libraries were modeled on like the Byzantine cathedral with a large cupola providing light, a central reading room on the, like on the model of a cathedral with side chambers for books. And the sacralization really of, of literature in the 19th century was, it, it suited to this. Um, this was a uplifting, transcendent experience, or it should be, to enter a library. And there, too, the Americans modeled themselves on the British Library um, and the National Library in Paris. And if you think of the difference in numbers, the, the, the New York Public Library, which was the largest U.S. library, managed to collect somewhere between 90 and 100,000 volumes, while the British Library was already close to half a million and the Paris collection, 8 million volumes. So, I mean, there was a vast scale of difference, but, you know, but, but the U.S., the New York Public Library is now in the top two or three libraries, public libraries in the world. So, um, so the ambition paid off and, you know, hopefully it paid off too in, the, in, uh, in, in inspiring um, working Americans, individuals, and women who are allowed in the library to, and, and young people, um, you know, to, to think. <laughs> it, it's so interesting. I, I see this coming up in your book and in this conversation, this anxiety about American belatedness. And I'm think, I, I was having a conversation with a friend the other day about the United States and the lack of ruins. You know, the fact we don't have coliseums and, and things like this. And so in hearing you talk, I'm thinking of book collecting is maybe one way we can access um, a, a visual landscape or, or a set of metaphors for thinking about flourishing and decline and disrepair. Absolutely. You know, you're right on target because the rhetoric that was used in support of the American public library movement uh, was to the effect of, we don't have great monuments to inspire our public to acts of intellectual greatness. Um, we're lacking, you know, uh, architectural uh, magnitude, um, but a great library is an unending uh, an eternal um, source of, of inspiration and spiritual nutrition and everything else. So they did put all of their eggs into the public library basket as a way of erecting a monument, a cultural monument uh, that would be inspirational. That was, that was really chiefly an important part of it. Um, you know, they were, the people who were behind it were interested in making America quote unquote catch up. I mean, that, those are my own scare quotes, catch up with um, European science, uh, history and literature in terms of quality. Um, 
without putting my own judgments on it. That's that's how it was seen by the people who were working on these large philanthropic projects and devoting, you know, bequeathing their own private collections to these libraries. I mean, our, the U.S. public library system and university library system, the great institutional libraries, are founded on private collections brought together in the 19th century by bibliomaniacs. I mean, that, that's the foundation, the base of, of, of major collections in the U.S. today. Even probably the digital resources, because things like Ebo rely on microfiche, re- rely on reproductions of of those um, of those association copies mm-hmm. that, or those earlier copies. Yeah. So some individual was was building a collection, and then that collection got subsumed into a larger collection, which maybe merged with another major collection. And that's how you have the New York Public Library. Um, so, or the Harvard Library, or you know what have you. But these libraries at the time, in terms of scale, were tiny. I mean, um, the Yale University Library had it didn't. I don't even think it had twenty thousand volumes, which was again, if you compare it to Göttingen or, or, or say maybe even Cambridge University, two hundred thousand volumes, ten times the size. So, you know, book collecting was an important part of cultural production and um, definition and historical, you know, the historians were writing, the U.S. historians were writing American history, which was the new world. It wasn't just the United States. And so books were needed both old books from the U.S. and early um, exploration histories from early printed books. The, these were all materials necessary for historical writing. I like to talk to guests about their writing process and, and academic style. Um, do you have rules of thumb when you're um, writing academic prose, strategies, techniques, um, aspirations? Right. So I think in a sense, um, the hardest part is getting started. In other words, one can do research and maybe do some organization and have some rough ideas, um, but actually like writing the first sentence of a book or an article sometimes is the stumbling block. After that, uh, I think it's just a question of, of, logging in which means going to the same place at the same time every day for a certain amount of time until you're done or for as long as it takes or as for as long as you can manage um on any given day but you know there's something about place that's really important so i've written different books in different places but it always has to be the same place for me um, not sure why that is, uh, but I think it's a very, to some degree, workaday process. You know, it's not, um, I'm going to go sit on a cliff today and, you know, <laughs> write the fourth ch- chapter of, you know, so, so that's what I, 
also like to tell students that, you know, just the glue technique, put some glue on your chair in front of your computer and just sit there, you know, and if nothing happens, well, do the same thing the next day. And eventually you'll get something done. But if you're not in that chair, you probably won't, you know. Okay, I, I like the glue technique. Um, that, that's wonderful. Um, do different places have have an influence on the kind of writing that you end up doing? Have you sort of tracked that? Like um, specific rooms being, um, I, I don't know, your sentences longer or something like that or, or shorter? You know, I think it's more about... Um, um, what your influences are, who you're surrounded by at the time that the book is developing or in, in the sort of formative stages of the book when you're the idea, ideation process, I think depends more on um, kind of like the dynamic of, of, again, inspiration, who you're surrounded by, what they're talking about, and what you might take away from that that's different or so you know this book i had a colleague who is no longer with us who had an a, a associational library he was a bibliomaniac of the first class you know and did he was a fantastic storyteller and narrator about the books displayed all i it was almost like um uh, uh, sort of introduction to the quintessential bibliomaniac Kyle uh, personality. And so that's clearly an influence on this book. Also, I have colleagues who at Stanford have been interested in book history and are Stephen Orgel is a collector. Um, uh, and, and Elaine Traharn is a medievalist colleague of mine who's interested in different aspects of book history. Most recently, uh, the handmade book. Uh, so this couldn't help but have been an influence. I'm not sure if I were elsewhere, I would have written the book, you know. Um, so I think to some degree, it's probably less about place than about place in terms of who's in the place um, or whom you're reading. It's the same thing, really. Mm. Which um, academic writers... Uh, have have been an influence on you, or who were you reading while you were working on this book? Well, I was working on this book. Um, I honestly, to be honest, for this book, it was the essayists themselves. It was the bibliomaniacs who were writing about books. It was the 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 you know the act the bibliom um, bibliophilic journalism. Um, that was so amusing and fanatical. So in a sense, and it was continual inspiration, Joseph Green Cogswell's letters, I would say, strangely enough, rank maybe not with Lamb and Keats's letters, but in a similar category where you just want to keep going back to them. They are full of life and vitality um, observation and personality. And so um, I felt the whole time that I was working on this book that I was, in, well, basically I was in the company of bellatrists rather than academics. And I felt they were also really 
um, good people. They cared about books, but they also cared about communicating that care and making it possible for others. They had a kind of sense of civic responsibility and, um, you know, sort of need to go beyond the self in their own interests and and produce these institutional collections so that others could share, who, who maybe weren't as well off, could share their um, passions and knowledge. So yeah, so in this book, I would say it's less academic than belletristic um, authorship that was the inspiration. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. A book Madness is a very a companionable book, a very genial um, book to spend time with. Um, and, and that's something I'll be returning to, to um, take away from my own style, uh, hopefully. Mm. Genial, I think, is a, is, a, is a really great word there. You know, you, you, you turn to some of these texts, I turn to the letters of these authors, their essays, their what have you, for not just intellectual, but also for like spiritual nutrition, you know, I mean, they were... Mm, they were carrying on what they were reading in a sense. So. Yeah. Um, finally, I'd like to ask what's next on the horizon. Uh, do you have a, a another scholarly project you're turning your attention to a class? You know, I, I put this out there, a hobby outside of academia that you're eager to uh, dedicate more time to? Both, I would say. I mean, I have to, so I have, um, my next book is The Mental Traveler, um, uh, a Blakeian pilgrimage through Renaissance, medieval and Renaissance iconography. And it's a study of Blake's illuminated books in the context of um, basically Catholic, um, um, well, well or I would say from the, from the 12th through the stop at the 16th century, doesn't really go past there. Um, a period of development, which is very, um, which is organized a little bit differently. It's organized on patterns of, of uh, different kinds of icons. And so there's gonna be a 125 color images in the book. And um, it was delivered as a series of lectures at the Clarendon Lectures at Oxford. So Oxford University Press will be producing the book and they're just waiting for the final manuscript basically. <laughs> so, I mean, I think it's in pretty good shape. It just needs to be finished. The outside project is, um, I think that book was inspired by, I had a motorcycle accident in Italy and I broke my shoulder and I ended up spending a month, three months, I don't know how long it was in, in rehab in Umbria, and then ended up going to very local um, churches and places that aren't the Vatican and, and just seeing Blake everywhere. And so that's how that project started. And, um, and so I'm in Italy now, uh, and I'm working on a kind of, um, I don't know, I guess you could call it a romantic landscaping project, which includes right now 12 peacocks and um, a fountain and various other things. So 
so I, I, I'm becoming more interested in um, actual landscaping. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, we'll, we'll keep uh, our eyes out for the mental traveler. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Denise. Thank you.